Welcome to Pop Culture Retro, which was recently voted the 15th best podcast by the residents of the Golden Years Retirement Community in Boca Raton, Florida. Each show, we'll revisit some of your favorite pop culture memories with insider and outsider perspectives. Now, please help me welcome your hosts, Ike Eisenman and Jonathan Rosen. Hello and welcome to another edition of Pop Culture Retro. Today we are thrilled to welcome the creative director of character design for Sesame Workshop and a member of the board of trustees at the Norman Rockwell Museum, Lewis Henry Mitchell. Lewis, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Really a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, first, I want to thank our mutual friend, Leslie Kimmelman, for setting this up. Uh, she's been our conduit to Sesame Street guests, and we're so happy to have you come on. Uh, I want to start by asking, where did you grow up? I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Oh, good. Uh -huh. A fellow Brooklynite, yes. <laughs> I was born in New, New Jersey, but it was very quickly we moved to Brooklyn. That's where I, that's where I became Lewis. <laughs> Which part of Brooklyn? East Flatbush. East Flatbush. My mom went to school there. I'm, I'm a sheep's head bay boy. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. So, <laughs> now, were you a fan of the Muppets as a kid? Oh, God, yes. I mean, it started very, very early. And when I was about six years old is when the magic really started to happen. So I can talk about that if you'd like me to. Yeah, I want to hear about oh, that. Oh, yeah, most definitely. <laughs> so, um, you know, remember the Ed Sullivan show? Well, you come, you know. <laughs> oh no! Oh, Ed Sullivan. I I've seen some of it, but I didn't see it probably when it was first on. <laughs> well, I did, and I'm so grateful that I did because I was watching one day, and of course I had seen many, many times when the Muppets were on. You know, when the Beatles came on, I didn't care about that. When the Rolling Stones came on, didn't care about that. Not even James Brown didn't care. But Ed Sullivan said. And they come the Muppets, I would do a sliding run into the living room. I didn't care who was watching. That was my <laughs> I was right in front of the TV set. And I just, you know, just <laughs> observed whatever they were doing, having a good time. I mean, I, there was also a puppet called Topo Gigi. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a great puppet. But there was something about the Muppets that was just a little bit different. So I, I was, um, as I'm watching it, you know, I'm enjoying it. And then one day when I did that, Jim Henson came out and it was a, it was the segment where Kermit is in like a tuxedo and this piano eventually eats him. And that was back in 1966. And I'm a little kid and I'm watching this. And at the end of that segment, Jim Henson came out. But this time, other times he just came out to shake it over his hand. So back then I didn't care about him either. I didn't know who that was. But this time he came out and Kermit was still on his hand. Mm. Kermit wasn't a frog yet because he didn't have the frog legs, but he was Kermit. He had a nice tuxedo and something snapped in my head that never snapped back. Again, I was six years old back then. And it <laughs> just blew my mind. I said, you mean a man was doing that? I couldn't believe it. So that was the beginning of, you know, my trajectory here. That's what long I started my career at six years old because wow. that's when I got the bug. And I didn't know. I mean, it was a, it was a, Quite a nice journey with the challenges here and there, but I did not know I was going to end up doing what I believe he considered his most important work was Sesame Street. That's why when they were trying to sell to Disney, he wouldn't sell that part. No, you can't have that. You can have everything else but that. So he really, really helped in the high esteem. And I'm grateful that I get to be like, like the top artist now for Sesame Street. That is absolutely incredible. I mean, so so that really was the the, the what what 
threw you into the creative world? I mean, did you did you kind of have a penchant for wanting to entertain people before that, or is it that's just that's just what shaped everything going forward? Well, no, I mean, I not so much entertaining people, but really like the drawing and puppets. I mean, I had my yeah. Herman Monster my Herman Monster puppet with a with a pull cord where he would speak. I had a puppet <laughs> called Maurice Monkey that would say, ooh, la la la, and you can use pull the string, all the pull string puppets. But it was really about drawing and cartoons, of course, you know, I love peanuts and the Disney stuff, the you know, Warner Brothers, all that stuff was really important to me. That was my school. That was real school. And I learned later on in my career when we were having meetings at entertainment companies, people were making all these references to the all these other cartoons. I'm saying no one talked about anything about Picasso or any of the other, <laughs> all about Bugs Bunny and Tom and Jerry. So it's, I'm so glad I indulged hedonistically watching those cartoons and just immersing into that world. Yeah, I learned about other artists too, but the world I was entering into was about the cartoons and the puppets and about the things that kids really connected with immediately. The important yeah. stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I'm with you. I'm a visual artist as well. And I, th this book behind me, The Art of Disney was, and I have a first edition of it actually in a, in a safe, even safer place. And I, that's what I poured through and learned how to draw from, from looking at, of course, the Disney masters and I was trying to live up to them. So I pushed myself pretty hard as a result, but I, I totally relate to exactly what you're talking about. Absolutely. Do you have the illusion of life? That's the book. No, now I know that's the one everyone tells me to get, and I, I I've not gotten it. I'm going to get it. You know what? I'm going to make a note right now because it's gonna. <laughs> I'm going to purchase it as soon as we're done recording this show. I almost so. want to hang up now. That you know. Oh God! Oh well, I apologize. Oh my oh, gosh! Oh, I didn't oh, want to offend oh, you this soon. No, 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 no offense. I'm just, I'm just trying to encourage you. Get that book. I will. I will that absolutely. Is the crown jewel of of all the work that I've seen anybody because they explain everything. Yeah, fundamentally and traditionally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have to get that from awesome. my son. Yes. Did Did you come? How about your family? Did you come from a, fa a background of creative people? Not really. I mean, my dad was pretty creative. He was a photographer, but like on a side, and he did some mm -hmm. sign painting. He was a good letterer, handler. So yeah, he was a uh, creative person. My mom's a nurse. My mother is the hero of my life because it was her. It was, she's really the reason why. I was about to ask that. Yeah, that's what I read that she was instrumental to your success. Oh, yeah, well, instrumental. Is there a bit more powerful word we can come up with? <laughs> a reason for my success. Yeah, no, you know, again, growing up, you know, she watched me draw. Whenever I was interested in anything, she would just kind of very subtly, you know, like she would, she knew I loved to draw animals. I was always trying to draw animals out of like magazines. So one day I come home and there's this encyclopedia. Now she knew how nosy, nosy I was too. So she would leave things around the house. <laughs> and not tell me that it was for me because she knew I was going to eventually find it under the there was one of the tables in the living room and there was a box and I said what is that so I went to open the box and there was an, a, a series four encyclopedia volume of animals and I said oh my gosh what is this I had no idea she bought it for me but I immediately opened it up and started drawing animals I remember that was, I think it was an elk was the first thing I saw it was a beautiful photograph so mom was really, really just such a champion of everything that I did all the way through. I mean, she was pretty tough too, you know, as I continued to progress in my drawing and she was a nurse so she knew her stuff about you know, medicine and anatomy and things like that. So I drew, I was really strong to draw a hand and I, show, I showed her everything. She was like one of my best friends. I showed her the hand and she says, you know, 
that looks like somebody who has cerebral palsy. I said, hey, mom, can you take it easy? I mean, I'm, I'm really trying to so, no, go back and try again. That does not, that hand does not look normal. So and the thing is, that, of course, I was offended, but it made me want to say, okay, I'm going to show her I can do this. And eventually, I, I got really, really good at drawing hands and other things. <laughs> but yeah, mama's was the champion of everything. Mm. God, well, what, what, um, you mentioned a few um, inspirations um, a few minutes ago, but what other cartoonists and illustrators um, influenced you or in, inspired you? Oh, there were so many, but I'll just cut to the chase. You know, the two most significant, well, there was one in particular too. His name is Neil Adams, comic book artist. Mm. From, he's the one that made Batman cool back in the 70s. And ask he, about him, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, the thing is, that's another whole story. Uh, I'll tell you more about that if you if there's time. Yes. If you like <laughs> but um, really, Norman Rockwell and Jim Henson are the two most generous artists that I've ever known of because, you know, Jim Henson was already, before Sesame Street really became popular, he was already doing films. Like he did the Muppets on Puppets back in, I think, in 1970. Mm -hmm. And what was released in 70. And it was all about how he made the puppets, how he designed, how he created the whole, you know, the television cameras, the proscenium for the puppets. And, you know, they didn't have a stage anymore like everybody else was doing. He was giving up all his secrets before he was even really famous. Mm. It really, really made me, like, it impacted me tremendously to how he's so generous. Then I discovered Norman Rockwell later on. Mm -hmm. And Norman Rockwell had done a book called How I Paint the Picture, although it was part of the famous artist school originally. So he would also, he would tell everything. I mean, back then, people, artists didn't want to show that they had like a balopticon, you know, a tracing machine. Rockwell was right there showing himself using that <laughs> because, again, it was a tool of a professional artist. See, mm. tracing is still something you have to learn how to do right by drawing for real without it. Uh, but I can yeah, go on and on about that too. But it's really Norman Rockwell and, and Jim Henson were the two key artists mm -hmm. that really, really impacted me. Now, of course, I, I love all the Disney stuff. Milk Carl is my favorite of all the, the nine old men. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they were all really great, but Milk Carl, stuff that he attempted in, oh my gosh. I can go on about <laughs> I can dive. I can dive right in with you. That's just. That's just. That's just fantastic. I guess plenty of Disney stories to go into as well. Yes, but I want to. I want to ask. We're going to ask about Neil Adams in a second. But I also read that you were like a huge fan of the Calvin and Hobbes series, and oh. that's that was that's my favorite of all time. I mean, I love that strip. To be, it, like it always showed a kid who could do anything because of his imagination, you know what what which is a great message to kids. What was it about that strip that you loved? Well, it was just so natural. It was he was so real. I mean, it, the dialogue, the situations, and all of that stuff. And I, when I was teaching at the School of Visual Arts, I actually used uh, the tenth anniversary book as part of the curriculum because. Mm -hmm. He was doing something that I did, and I didn't know anybody else was doing it. He did, he knew Calvin so well that and Hobbes that he didn't really have to write a script. He would just create a scenario, and then he, he would let Calvin tell him what he wanted to do, how he was going to navigate through the situation. So I said, so that's that's really beautiful. I've been doing that too. I don't really like when I'm directing a photo shoot for the Muppets. They tell me what the people tell me all the time. Please, Lewis. Don't tell anybody that the puppets are talking to you. Well, then don't ask me. 
because they really do. These are my friends. These are not characters or properties. These are my buddies. You know, Cookie Mouse is my favorite of all time. I'll tell you what, I'll wait if you want. But it really is a, a situation where I, I, I immerse myself in listening to what the characters want to tell me. When I read that Bill Addison did that with Calvin, it really was like a huge validation and, you know, just just a, a miracle to me. But his design sense, the way he designed the pages, I know he had a hard time with the Sunday uh, strip because sometimes he was limited there, but he would do these beautiful, just breaking all the rules and doing all kind of crazy stuff with beautiful drawings. I mean, his whenever he went back and Calvin was imagining being in the dinosaur era, those gorgeous drawings of dinosaurs. And the guy, he's a great cartoonist, but he can draw dinosaurs like they're really working on them. It was just, well, to be honest, everything about Calvin Hobbes I love, you know. It's, and it, the reason why I, is because I think it is the greatest, you know, no disrespect to Charles Schultz, who I loved, mm -hmm. or Peanuts, you know, I was, I remember copying and drawing those things when I was a kid. Nothing compares to Calvin and Hobbes as far as a comic strip. And as far as character development, really amazing, just amazing. Did, did you ever get to meet Watterson? No, I always heard he was not, not really someone who likes to get involved. That's in what I read this time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I would love to, but I wouldn't want to impose you. Know, right. I'm grateful that he left us something really magnificent. Sure. I bought the whole set. You know, I have look all the books too, but I bought the, the giant box set. That oh, I got that. <laughs> Same. Now, now you, you mentioned Neil Adams a second ago. I, that, what was it? You started working for him at 17 years old? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, first I started at the place called the New York Comic Art Gallery. And it was on 15th Street in Manhattan because I was I was at the school, High School of Art and Design. And my friend had told me, hey, Lou, did you know about this new comic store that's nearby? So, well, no, show me. So we went there. And he didn't have a lot up at the time. His name is Mark Ringner. He's the one that owned it. And I just recently got back in touch with him. I think it was just like last year. And I hadn't spoken to him in 40 years. Wow. But yeah, it was just, he, he is really the one, another champion of my life, Mark Ringner, because, you know, I was working for him. Like, he couldn't afford to pay me because he just opened. So he'd pay me in comic books. I told him, just give me like the, a, a selection of the new comics that come in each week. He says, yeah, I can do that. So I did that for a little while, but then, you know, I showed him my artwork too, because, you know, he was, um, he was very interested in, in me as a person. So um, one day I come in and he says, you know, Louis, you, you've been great. I had been working there for a while. I said, you know, you've been really great. I thought I was going to get fired the way he was talking. He says, but you know, I have a friend of mine who, um, he needs an assistant. He's a comic book artist and he needs an assistant. Now I've been trying to find a way to get into the comic book field. So uh, I said, well, he said, would you be interested in, in meeting this person, you know, and, you know, just showing him your work? You know, he just needs an assistant for, uh, for his work. I said, yeah, sure. Who is it? He said, well, it's Howard Chaykin. And Howard Chaykin, you know, he, he did the first Star Wars comic books. He did a lot, of, a lot of really great work. But back then, I did not understand his work, and I didn't like it. I said, why did it have to be Howard Chaykin? Couldn't it be somebody like John Romero or somebody? I said, no, no. And again, I love Howard's work. <laughs> It didn't take me long to really, uh, really understand it and like it, you know, back then. But uh, at first, I really wasn't crazy. So I, I went to meet him, and he flipped over my drawings. I just had my sketchbooks with me, and he he even said, you know, he draw better than I do. I, <laughs> but I didn't say anything. I, you know. <laughs> but, but the thing is, um, I worked with him for a while. Learned a lot of stuff. Learned about the business and about, you know, how to, you know, 
just a lot of different things about the actual craft of comic book design, sequential art and things mm -hmm. like that. And we, he was a funny guy too, we had a really good time. Then he tells me one day, he said, you know, Lewis, the first Friday of every month, you know, all the comic book artists get together to have like a party, just to kind of get together. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was the first, first Friday party. Would you like to come? I said, <laughs> yeah, I'd love to come. They said, this one's going to be at Neil Adams' house. Now, that's when my heart sank because I'm going to get to go to Neil Adams' house. And then he said something that scared the heck out of me. He said, I want you to bring your sketch pad so Neil can see what you do. Wow. I know Neil was always kind of, Neil's standards are like through the roof. But um, but I already agreed, so I brought us in. If he doesn't like my drawing, because he was God to me, you know, mm. at that time. So if he doesn't like my drawings, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I said, oh, well, I already said I'm going to do it. So I, I went to the party. And of course, Harold wasn't there yet. So I'm sitting there, and I'm and all these famous, you know, Ralph Reese and, you know, it's, it's different comic book artists at the time were really, you know, walking around and talking, having a good time. But I was a shy 17-year-old kid. I didn't know what to do with myself. So I'm sitting there on the couch watching TV and peripherally observing everybody, having a good time that way. Suddenly this guy comes out and he sits across from me with his arms folded, just looking at me. It was Neil Adams. And I said, oh my God, in my head. I didn't say it out loud. <laughs> so, he, so he's looking at me and I'm, I'm, just, I'm just looking at the TV, my eyes wide open. I, I don't know what, what to do. So I'm just sitting there. He gets up and turns off the TV, sits back down and starts just looking at me again. Then I said, now I don't know what I'm going to do. But just then, Howard Chaikin walks in. He always made a big interest. He, he wanted like two drinks and a plate of lasagna. He was, you know, he was really rambunctious. I remember he was wearing this pair of boots and he, um, that he had just bought beautiful leather boots. And he took real good care of them. But when he said, hey, Lewis, did you show me your work? He grabs my sketchbooks and goes down and kneels down in front of Neil, scuffing up those, those boots that he was bragging about. He was so enthusiastic about showing my work to Neil that he forgot about his boot. He's turning the page and saying, Neil, look at this kid. He's just a kid and he can draw like this and blah, 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 and anatomy and perspective. And he's going on and on. And Neil's looking at everything and he takes over, starts turning the pages. Every now and then he just look up at me. But he'll turn the and look up at me. So he went through all three of my sketchbooks three times backwards and forwards. That's when um, he said, you know what? I've been sitting on a series of scripts for about three years now, and I couldn't find anybody who could handle it, but I think you can handle it. Why don't you come up to Continuity? You know, his name of the studio is Continuity. Why don't you come up to Continuity? I'll get you started on the project. Oh, wow. So, okay, I have to leave now because I could not handle that. So I, I, I shook his hand, I got up and I went out. And it, by the time I got down in the elevator, it just hit my, my, my hero just hired me, just looking at my sketchbooks. And I'm screaming at the top of my lungs of Madison Avenue, 48th or 49th Street. Neil Adam just hired me, I can't believe. It. I didn't care who heard me, who saw me. I look like a maniac, I'm sure. But that was one of the most seismic validations of my life. And I was only 17 years old. The, 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 the strip was called Tippy Toe Jones. And it, what it was was that it was a cartoony character in a realistic world. And I guess Neil felt that there was nobody that he saw at the time anyway. And he's Neil Adams, he knew everybody. But he saw that I could draw realistically and cartoony. And he mm -hmm. liked the combination. So he gave me that assignment, worked on it for a long time. And I remember being a kid, talking to my friends, saying, 
you know, we were looking at Neil Adams comic books, you know how, how comics have done, you know, with the penciler and the inker and the colors. So I'm saying, you know, one day Neil Adams is going to ink my pencils. You know, we're we'll laughing. I was like 13 when I first said that. And I first <laughs> met him was at a comic book convention in 60 and in, 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 um, 76. And that's when I, you know, I, I met him and I got him to sign something for me. But I didn't, I didn't know it or ask any of the questions. I was just grateful to get his autograph. But then when I got to meet him later on, you know, I showed him that book. I still have that book. It was really, really amazing to show him. But yeah, to be hired by Neil Adams at, at that such a young age was such a gigantic validation. And he eventually did. He's the one that inked the Tippy Toe Jones artwork. So, oh my God. Um, Neil Adams inked my pencil drawings. I, <laughs> I, and he, he just, not too long ago, maybe about three or four years, maybe five years ago, just gave me some of the pages that never got to be published. Oh, With, wow. Exactly. Uh, yeah, Echo of Future Past was the magazine, the comic size magazine was, he was printing it in. And he, you know, he, he, he kind of stopped it at the time. So he gave me a bunch of the pages. I'm saying, look at this. Neil Adams inked my pencil. You can oh see some God. of the pencils still there, some of the inks. It's like a beautiful, oh man. <laughs> so that's absolutely astounding. Um, so clearly you were a fan of his prior prior to that. And had you always been a fan of, of, of comic books in general? Uh, yeah, kind of. Um, I didn't really read them as much as I looked at the artwork. I mean, I love John. Yeah. Then see, Gil that was me. I, I didn't read them. I, yeah. the, I, I thought kind of they didn't make sense to me but the images were so <laughs> profound to me they were so incredible and i just that's what i poured myself into so yeah <laughs> even gil, gil kane was another one that really turned me on you know i wasn't crazy about jack Kirby back then although i adore him now but back then it was really about gil kane then i was about 11 years old and my sister this is a funny story my sister took me my sister both of them took me we're going to prospect park in brooklyn and we um, stopped off at this place, this um, like a candy store, to get some snacks and something to drink. And we're about to go get pizza. So um, I'm looking, of course, they went to whatever they were doing. And I saw the comic book rack. So I ran over to the comic books. They're just looking around. All of a sudden, now I, I don't know, is this going to be strictly audio or is this video too? Video. Oh, no, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll have it on YouTube. Well, back, back there, there is, is a comic book, Green Lantern and Green Arrow, number 85. Ah. This is a, a printout of the giant poster. I know that one very well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, there's a lot that I could tell you about that book, man, because it really is a, another seismic validation in my life. Tremendous stuff. But the thing is, I'm 11 years old, I'm looking at that, and I'm turning the pages, and I had never seen so much effort put into a comic book of saying, why did this man put it? Look, I said, I, it feels like I'm watching a movie, not looking at a comic book. They look so real. The lighting, the, the acting, everything in there was just a, a, amazing to me. So I, I told my sister, I have to get this. I have to get this. And she says, wait a minute. We're getting good, get, get some peace in our back that we didn't have a lot of money. So, hmm. and, and I'm going to age myself a lot, which I don't care. I'm still six years old. Um, <laughs> Pizza back then cost 25 cents a slice. But that book caught that Green Lantern Green Arrow cost 25 cents. And she said, wait a minute. You mean you'd rather have this book spend 25 cents on this comic book than to get a slice of pizza? I said, yes. I didn't care. I, I couldn't believe my eyes. She got me the pizza anyhow. I, I mean, I was I was a little nervous. I was hungry, but I didn't care. I was being fed by this book. Mm -hmm. There 
just layers and layers of things that in the, there's one panel in particular that really was, I think it's on page 13, where he puts all the action in the background. Green Lantern and, and, and Green Arrow are speaking to Bucky. And not, yeah. Is his name Bucky? Yeah, well, yeah, to his, uh, his ward. Yeah. And in the foreground is this beautiful pen and pencil set of this rhinoceros pen and pencil set. He put all this beautiful detail in the pen and pencil set and put the action in the background and said, why did he do this? I couldn't, I mean, I love this. Of course, I copied that thing so many times trying to draw. He used like a stipple technique. It was beautiful stuff. But I mean, again, I know, I don't, I know we don't have a whole lot of time, but I'll tell you one thing that really, really shocked me beyond words in that book. On the first page of the book, when you open it up, I didn't see it at first, but there's a way in the background, there's a, there's a, a, a bar called Lewis's Bar. And he put my, my name, spelled the same way I spelled Lewis, in the background, he said, Lewis's Bar. And I didn't see it for you, but I said, hey, my name is in this book. <laughs> but I, I'm not on drink. Why would you see Lewis's bar? Then later on, I realized I, because again, he was, I was trying to emulate Neil Adams. He was like everything to me. Lewis's bar didn't mean to me, didn't mean a place to drink. Lewis's bar means this is the high bar that you need to attend to attain to. Lewis's bar. So that book, again, it's still my favorite comic book of all time. Never changed. But to recognize that that was helping me to set me on a trajectory to aim that high. Uh. And then I end up working with a guy. So, oh, for him. So, yeah, I, again, I, I'm trying not to go too far with this, but it's just, it's just the most significant <clears throat> art that I have in my house is that comic book. Hmm. Well, I, I got to ask, because I was a huge comic book fan. I just got to, how jealous were your friends that you were doing this at the time? You know what? Yeah, it was a little bit of jealousy, but I bought them with me. You know, I, I show, hey, Nina, it's my friend's work. And they you know, okay, then well, give me a shot. So my two best friends, Andre and, and this guy named Stedroy, they both worked for Neil, too. Oh, so I, was able to share it. I was able to share it, man. Well, did you, I mean, did, at, at that point, did you ever consider a career in, in comic books um for yourself well i worked for neil and i was doing it but um i started learning more see the thing is as i followed my own trajectory and my own path i started to discover other things that were of interest to me and again i was always thinking about the muppets in the back of my mind mm -hmm. you know, but um, <clears throat> well, so i'm glad I was, I was able to do that and i'm working on some stuff myself now that that i i plan to you know see if i can get a publisher for Oh well, um, yeah, it's it's like some graphic novel work that I'm doing. And I'm doing so many different projects. You see a piano behind me, right? I'm writing this whole jazz rock opera. You know, oh my gosh. yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing a lot of different things, but my I I started to realize, you know what? It it needs to go wherever it wants to go. This creative muse, this desire to create, this art life, just needed to go where. So I just follow along. I, I don't judge it. I don't question it. And I'm doing all these projects, and that's how I ended up doing all these things. And that's why when they when I got to Sesame Street, there was a point when they didn't know what because every time they gave me an assignment, I said, "Yeah, I can do that." And they said they didn't know what to call me, so they called me the director of special projects for a long time. And, you know, and then and then they just said, "Look, 
Well, you become the creative director and character designer, <laughs> which which now means, I mean, I direct all the photo shoots, which is really cool, but I also design all the new Muppets, which is really, really- That's amazing. amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's what Jim Henson was doing before, you know, before he passed away. He was, I mean, he, he, he was letting other people design it, but at one point he was the designer. And now I get to do what Jim Henson did for Sesame Street, man. It's just beyond my wildest dreams. I had high dreams and high expectations. Everything was surpassed. Everything across Incredible. the Incredible. I want to ask though, you, you just going back, you're talking about mentors. Yeah, I, I was reading that when you were in college, one of your professors actually tried to discourage you from pursuing your job at Sesame Place. Well, Sesame he didn't try to discourage me. He discouraged me. It was um, yeah, because I he loved my work and I the School of Visual Arts, I'll never give his name because, you know, maybe he's he's seen the light and he doesn't say that anymore. And I don't want anybody walking up to him and saying, hey, you said this to Lewis. I don't give his name out. But it was at the School of Visual Arts and he loved my work. I remember I did this one really super detailed drawing, a pencil drawing of a, of a, of a locomotive. And, um, and I wrote something like, you know, there's no sin in the full indulgence of, of patience alone, something like that about drawing, just taking your time and really drawing. He loved it and he wrote it in the book that he taught from in the class. And so he wrote my quote, maybe I can tell him my dream about working with Jim Henson on Sesame Street. So I went and told him, I said, you know, I, I have a dream. you really like my work. Do you think I might be good enough to, to get a job for, you know, at, at Sesame Street with Jim Henson? And that's when he said, oh, Louis, I believe in you, man, but you're aiming way too high. You know, oh, you gotta you gotta aim lower to, to achieve dreams that you can actually achieve, but you're, you're never gonna get that job. Oh. So of course, I'm 19 years old, uh, you know, I think it was 18 or 19, and it crushed me. Even though I had the validation of, of working for Neil at 17, some hearing something like that, because that was a that was the dream I had before I even met Neil mm -hmm. Adams about getting involved in Muppet while well, I wasn't thinking about a job, but just to be part of it. Then in college, I said, Yeah, maybe I can get the work there. And he said that to me and it just crushed me. So I'm sitting on that. My mother made my home a beautiful place. It was a beautiful wonderland. She was straight. I had my chores, but she still made it beautiful. And I'm sitting around moping and she was not going to tolerate that. So what's the matter with you? I said, well, mom, you know, because I told her everything. I said, remember that I told you I wanted to work for that man that does those puppets? See, well, my teacher told me I'm never going to get the job. So I guess I might as well forget about it. And she said, wait a minute. Does he work for that man that does those puppets? And I said, well, no. And she said, well, what do you listen to him for? He doesn't even work there. If they don't want you, let them tell you. But don't listen to somebody. She got really mad. She, don't, don't let somebody who doesn't even work there. It made sense, but it was still like a, a blow. Because I, I was expecting maybe it might be difficult. He said, I will never get that job. Yeah. And he meant so much to me. So anyhow, you know, as time went on, I went ahead and said, I, you know, that's a real desire. You know, we don't, I really believe we don't decide who we're going to become. We discover it. That was a discovery of the, the desire to work with the Muppets. So I went ahead and put together a portfolio and it took me about eight months of getting and trying to get to the right person. That last day, I went and said, you know what? I'm going to try one more time. Maybe that teacher was right. Uh, maybe he's right that I wasn't going to get a job. I'll try one more time. So I bought the portfolio, dropped it off. And by the time I got back home, there was a call from my mentor, my guru, Jim Mayen, who was the art director over a lot of Sesame Street work and Muppets in general. And you know, he, said, he said the same thing Neil said. He says, 
you know, I like your work very much. Why don't you come on up? I'll get you started on the project. The same thing that Neil Adams said when I was, you know, 17 years old, I heard from this man here. But at that time, I was <laughs> 32, I think. <laughs> it took me that long to finally get through. Mm. But, but that's when I started, started in 1992. So this June will be 30 years since I started wow. working for Sesame Street. Did you ever, did you ever hit, get tempted to go back to that teacher and like say, hey, look what I'm doing now? I went back. You didn't go back? Not, not to beat him up or anything like that, <laughs> but I was really hot at him. But I, but I couldn't find him. For whatever reason, I could not find him. So I said, you're right, forget about that. I let him go. What I'm going to do is I'm going to, whenever I have an opportunity, that's why I'm grateful that you're giving me this opportunity here. Whenever I have an opportunity to speak to anybody, not just kids, but adults too, mm -hmm. Said, so, you know what? If anybody tells you you can't do something, that's because maybe they think they can't do it. But you got to keep pursuing it. There's a reason why you desire to do something in your life, and I really believe it's a calling. You know, so I just followed suit. I wish I I'd known this before because it was really difficult. It was almost like a hardship. Some of the things that I had to go through. But now when I tell people the hardships you go through, that's just training. That's just part of the preparation. So that by the time you get to where you need to go, you're going to be fully prepared. So don't, don't try to get away or around the hardships and the challenges. You know, use them. That's your part of your education. I know that now, but back then it is not. So, and it was hell. <laughs> well, was it that experience that um, you decided to start the Spirit Storm School? Uh, yeah, exactly right. And that, wow. that's it's a big deal. And the thing is that even though I tried launching the school like six times already, it just wasn't time yet. And the thing is, there's so much that I've learned since then. Look, even like um, the week before last, I was on the Galapagos Islands. Hmm. It, was, it, was, it was a gift that the, the CEO of Lindblad Expeditions asked me, Louis, would you be the artist in residence on this seven-day cruise? To the Galapagos. No, I don't want that. <laughs> you kidding? I have books and DVDs on my bookshelf about going to the Galapagos. So one day I'll make it. I'm not sure how. <clears throat> get this call. He's the he's also the chairman of the board of, trust, of trustees at the Norman Rocco Museum. But he said, "Hey, Louis, I love the stuff you say. Why don't you come on this expedition with me?" So okay. And again, just being out there, another seismic. I use the word seismic a lot. I'm not exaggerating. These shifts in my life really do things to change me and to grow me and to open me up. And I, the only reason I ended up on the Galapagos Islands is because I stayed on the course of becoming an artist. I stayed with my heart. I stayed with the call of my heart. And it, it led me so many... Trust me, I have, I have even more seismic validations that I can share with you. But these are just tremendous things that are going on because I stayed with the call. I stayed with the purpose that was revealed to me. Mm. And, and you worked I, I have to ask you about this you worked at mtv for a while doing animation yeah, yeah sure i did um i was on the show called daria i remember daria <laughs> yeah daria I was, I was in the character design department and i had to you know i had i just did some of my own design work for them but then i had to take everybody else's design and do like these finished tight ink drawings that they could use you know for for the for the animators and it was it was fun a lot of fun but then they wanted to get into the advertising game. So, um, because, you know, people were always copying MTV, the MTV style. So somebody actually um, went and used that style to try to get this, this gig with 7-Eleven. 7-Eleven was doing this new thing called the, um, what was she called? The Video Vixen. It was a new commercial. And so 
MTV, I mean, MTV tried to pitch for it too, but you know, I think it was um, Will Vinton. Remember the California Raisins? That's an old commercial. Oh yeah, like, Will Vinton, great, great animator. His whole company was probably the one that was going to get it. That was a spot. huge spot, a huge spot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ran yeah, Ranford for a long time. My God, it was amazing. Yeah, yeah. So um, I went to the guy who was kind of running the MTV um, com commercials division that they were trying to start up. I said, hey, you know, I, I actually was in advertising a while back. I mean, I can talk about that too later on, but I was in advertising. Can, is there anything that help? You know, and he says, well, we're probably going to get it, but, you know, you can give it a shot. So he showed me, you know, the, the script and the ideas of what it was about, this, this military woman that, you know, that was going to meet this angel that was going to get her through this wartime thing with all these weapons and all this stuff. I said, I, how, how is this related to 7-Eleven? So I don't care. I'll do it. So I went ahead and I drew the main character, just one drawing. And I gave it to the guy. And I said, look, this is how I'm starting. See, I'll show this to the director and see what he says. He told me that when the director saw my drawing, he said, this is it. You guys got the account. I beat Will Vinton with one drawing, oh, man. Oh, wow. One drawing, the director saw <laughs> that and said, this is it. You guys got the account. So then I was like the hero. And... We had a we had like a weekly meeting. So one um, one week, the the director of the meeting at MTV said, "Oh, we just got uh, our first commercial job for our new advertising division, and um, we want to just thank the team that that worked on it." So then she asked the guy who's Nick Nick Latwinko. She asked Nick said, "Nick, you're in charge of this. So who, who's the team? We want to, you know, celebrate the team that did this. I said, well, it wasn't really a team. It was just Lewis. So I stood up and everybody <laughs> gave me a standing ovation. There were two other companies that were working on it, but I couldn't believe it that one of my drawings beat out. I was a big fan of Will Vinton's work. And I love that, those commercials. <laughs> Oh my God. So, okay. So what you start, you, you talked a little bit about presenting yourself to, to, to Sesame street, but when, what was the point at which you finally said, no, I'm going to actually pursue this. What, when did that occur? Um, gee, I guess when I was in college, um, right before the, the I showed my teacher that tried to discourage me, I, I had so many, I'd seen so many things. And, you know, of course, my son, you know, really a big fan too. He loved Labyrinth, was a, his favorite, favorite, favorite. Oh, love that movie. Yeah. Yeah, we've seen it. I mean, of course, <laughs> I have DVDs here myself, but we watch the movie like almost every weekend. And sometimes during the week, he's dad, can we watch Labyrinth? Like, yep, let's go. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I went out when I was in um, college, I said, no, I got to pursue this. I really want to see if I can do this. I was already well working professional. Like I said, I worked for Neil Adams. I eventually worked for um, an advertising agency, you know, you know, full art director for ABC Television. Then um, I worked for a place called um, Abrams Gentilly Entertainment, which I was the entire art department. So I was a working professional, but the dream was still ahead of me. That carrot was still there, you know, to really completely get a full gig <clears throat> on Sesame Street. So it was, a, it was in college that I really said, this is it. I'm going to go for it. Then, of course, shortly after that, my teacher tried to kill the dream, <laughs> wow. but he didn't. You know, mom saved it. So, <laughs> well, you you mentioned it took you it took you eight months because we had Emily Kingsley on, and she said that it, it took her trying and trying and trying to get in. So it took you eight months from this time you started to the time you get in. 
month. Yeah, and at first it was once a month for the first four months. Then I was going like every couple of weeks. Then I was going weekly. And I have to give credit to this wonderful woman, Jennifer Rubinacci. She was the receptionist that I would see. Mm -hmm. and she would always say, oh, Louis, you're working so good. Let me see who I can send it to. I'm, I, I, and then I remember that last day I went and I said, no, Jennifer, you really been nice. I was kind of choked up, to be honest. I said, you've been so sweet to me. Um, I think this might be my last time trying. So, you know, I'm just leaving it to the last. She said, Louis, don't give up. I said, look, you know, a teacher told me something that maybe I think she may have been right. So I can't keep breaking my heart like this. I really want this. And if I'm not supposed to have it, I have to shift gears now. So I dropped it off. And again, when I got home, I had the uh, call from Jermaine who told me he wanted to get me started on the project. And it, it was a tiny drawing of Ernie's head in the size of a baby, side of a baby sneaker. But it was the biggest job in the world because I, I got the gig at Sesame <laughs> It was teeny, like a quarter of an inch was going to be ultimately printed on a sneaker. But I didn't care. It was so great. And it turned into lots of other things. That, that I'm doing. What were your first responsibilities when you first started there? Just licensing art. I was a licensing artist. And um, I, was, I was really popular, too. A lot of people wanted me. And then I walked in one day to Sesame Workshop to drop off some work again as a freelancer, but I was really immersed. So I considered myself a full-timer. I was doing a lot of work. And they told me, no, Lewis, um, there have been three companies that were, I don't know how many companies exactly, but there, there were several companies that were bidding for you to be their exclusive office. I said, wow, what does that mean? I, I didn't like that at first. What do you mean? I want I wanted to be vast and do lots of things for everybody. Then they told me, well, there's a company called Romar International. They do a lot of products. I still didn't like the idea, but then when I met the guy that ran, you know, he they said that he won the bid. And I said, how are you guys like, I felt like almost like, like I'm being prostituted out. I mean, I felt kind of weird. Huh. I, never, I mean, it was nice to know people are bidding for me, but at the same time, what does that mean? And yeah, I met the guy and he just told me, he showed me this vast amount of work. I was going to be doing everything from t-shirts and lunch boxes and bed sheets and I mean it was just unending just tremendous I I did very well financially there so that, that was really really great you remember the first character you worked on he was Ernie Ernie was oh, that was one. it that was the first one the very what? first thing wow. well, not, not, for, not for Walmart for Walmart it was Elmo <laughs> but for, for my very very first job it was Ernie Ernie <laughs> little Ernie. I just love the fact that your figurative foot in the door at Sesame Street was literally a shoe that's just fantastic <laughs> <laughs> hey, I love that man I'm gonna, gonna feel that from you. <laughs> you, you, you by all means please <laughs> awesome. I love that so how long did it take for you to go to like, you know, just having a job there to becoming, you know, the creative director? So um, doing a lot of work. And then at, at one point I had to minimize my work for Sesame Street because I was still freelance, but the other opportunities came up and people sort of wanted to work, me to work for them. And like I said, this company called Abrams Gentle Entertainment, um, they, they contacted me through Neil Adams Studio. And they said, look, we have this comic strip we wanted this called Paparazzi Samurai. It was in the old um, movies magazine. Um, that it was like a free magazine. You got the movie theaters. So they had this comic strip in there because we're going to design a whole toy program around these guys, the Paparazzi Samurai. And, you know, so I, I started doing that. Then they asked me to do a couple of other jobs. 
And they loved, they loved my work. Was, I was so grateful that they were responding so well. These two artists too, uh, John and Anthony Gentili, really great guys. And they, um, after a while, they said, well, Lou, you know, would you like to, you know, have an office here? So they let me have an office there. And then they offered me a position. The only problem is that I, I really had to be exclusively there for like two years. And I said, man, <coughs> Sesame Freelance work. I really don't want to give that up because, you know. So I, I didn't completely give it up. I did what I could without breaking this contract. And uh, so I stayed in connected with Sesame, but I also did all this work for, for Abram Jensen Entertainment, designing everything, toys and animation, hmm. and even writing a little bit of music, you know, it was everything. I was really stretched and pulled, but Sesame Street, still in the back of my head, it was always there. Never one of actually it's deep in my heart is what it was. But then um, one day after, you know, the contract was up and then, I shifted from Abrams Gentile to MTV Animation. And that was doing very well there. But then after, I think about three seasons, one of the producers there, I don't know, she, I guess she didn't like the fact that I was getting so popular in there because of that. I helped them get the advertising gig, you know, single-handedly and all this kind of stuff was going on. I was really, really popular, you know, at the company. I don't know what it was, but it seemed like it rubbed it the wrong way. So she, she, and I didn't realize in my contract that there was certain work that I had to do that I wouldn't even get paid for. I didn't understand it at first, but, and they never came up until that particular season. Mm -hmm. I said the third or fourth season. I said, and so I had to do all this work. It was a tremendous amount of work and I didn't get any, put it this way, I wasn't getting extra pay. So, you know, this isn't right. Something's wrong with this. So, you know, let's see if I can you know, kick up my freelance again with Sesame and kind of turn the volume up on that. When I called, they told me, oh, Lewis, we've been looking for you for, for like three months. You can have free freelance work if you want, but if you want, we have a full-time job for you if you'd like it. I said, what? I said, yes, we'd love for you to come on full-time. So, oh my gosh. So I went and gave my two-week notice <laughs> to me. And of course, then... They, you know, they throwing everything at me to try to keep me there. <laughs> Forget it, the, the dream. So three weeks, and I, three weeks after I left MTV and started working at Sesame, Dario was canceled. Wow. So yeah, I'm telling you, all this serendipitous stuff that was happening. So they, they asked me to come on full-time in 2000. I was freelancing from 92, so eight years. Mm. And then in 2000, they said, please come as a full-time employee. And mm been there ever since good grief okay so now you've become you've reached the pinnacle and you're now lewis henson um <laughs> developing the characters yeah, um, I, love, what, I love how you put things man <laughs> <laughs> but i mean i i'm just look i i've been a fan of sesame street since i was seven years old i saw the first um the actual first broadcast, the very first episode, because yeah. it was it was shown in my school. They brought in the TV and set it up, and we all thought, "What on earth are we going to be watching?" You know. But then Sesame Street unfolds, and and I, I I was a little old older for it, so the content wasn't something that I was drawn into. But the puppets absolutely just fascinated me as well. You know. Um. So I, I just I want to know what that process is like. Um, you know, creating the new characters? Is it is it you throwing out designs on your own or is it collaborative? How does that all come together? 
Well, it kind of evolved over time because again, the Jim Henson Company had always designed them all, but then things shifted a lot and they started to really need very specific designs that came from the company for specific initiatives. Mm. So, so they tried again, they tried to do something that for Black Lives Matter, you know, for the, for the racial justice initiative mm. that they developed. And it just didn't work. Now, I had already designed, um, I helped design Cami, the South African Muppet. And I also designed Julia. Oh, we're going to ask about Julia. Yeah. Right. But, um, but the process now is that, you know, and again, it evolves over time, is that um, they, they try to start doing things. I told them one time, I think I got in a little bit of trouble. I said, you know, we're not playing Mr. Potato Head. Don't try to pick the nose, color of a nose and what kind of eyes. Let's find out what the initiative is and what's the story behind the initiative and now what kind of character can help tell that story it has to go I, when i taught um character design at school of visual arts i told him i said I, the first assignment so i want you to design a character but i don't want you to draw anything and you look at me like i'm crazy i said no <laughs> character art is drawing character character design is creating from from the initiative from you know, using a visual to create from it for an initiative. So, um, maybe three or four steps down the line is when you start to draw. But you got to understand what it is first. Like who you know, what's the initiative, who it's for, and you know exactly what kind of storyline do they need now. What kind of character do they need now? Let's see if we can visualize the character. So I'll read scripts or I'll read a, a bio, and you know, at one time with, with the Black Lives Matter Muppet. Um, they were having trouble with, you know, they, Henson had done something, but Sesame was not happy with it. And I was on vacation. So they called me from vacation. Said, well, if you hate the body on vacation, I said, look, this is my life. Don't worry about that. Of course, I, I, I come back from my vacation early. So I came back early and <clears throat> I did the sketches. I did some sketches. They wanted me to um, have maybe one sketch over the weekend. This is a Thursday I came back. So I, they had the meeting. And again, they were trying to figure out what color nose to give and what kind of hair. And they said, look, put that all away. We can't be thinking about the, the image yet. We have to, we'll, we'll be distracted by that if we don't focus on the initiative and what the story is. Mm -hmm. Character design is storytelling. Mm -hmm. Like everything in life is storytelling. But anyhow, they, they finally got it. They, they gave me the chance to do it. So um, I, and I said, now, is there going to be, there's a, a son and a father. I said, well, is it going to be eventually a mom you know, or any other character? So, well, yeah, but we don't need them then. So, no, no, no. If I'm design, if you're going to have a family eventually, I should design them all now, even if you don't need them later on because it's a family unit. It kind of flows together. It's almost like writing music. You have to really think about the harmony and all the parts that go to make it whole. Okay. And they, they, they like this, but we only need the little boy over the weekend. I designed the entire family overnight mm -hmm. because I really immersed myself into it. Yeah. And then um, part of, the, part of the, the gig is that I have to do three designs for each character. So I did three of the boy, I did three of the dad, and I just did one of the mom and the grandmother and the dog because they, they weren't going to really be dealing with them until later, but I wanted to include them. Okay. One of the designs I did was of my son. And of course, I didn't say anything. My son, when he was six years old, I used him as my inspiration for the kid. But I didn't say, I, I submitted all three designs, didn't say a word. But of course, when they saw the designs, they saw that one, because of course I put, I try to be equal 
But of course, you can't do that because that was my son. So I went ahead and I, I submitted the drawing. They said, that's him. This is the one. It was the one of my son. So, yeah. So my son now is a Muppet on Sesame Street. Yeah, he, he's used to cool all the time, but when he found out he's a Muppet on Sesame Street, Dad, what are you kidding me? He brags about it constantly now. That is so oh, that's awesome. wonderful. That's just wonderful. <laughs> do you, so you have final say on, on the Muppets or no? Well, I don't have final say, but um, I do direct, like, I'll give the three designs. Then they'll they'll take it to the production department. We have what's called the Culture Trust as well, because the most recent Muppets I've been designing were all like these international Muppets, you know, mm-hmm. different cultures, different countries. Although I did do, um, well, I'm not sure if, if, I did a robotic version of Cookie Monster that I, I don't know if I can announce that yet. I don't think they made the announcement. Oh, we have a, a breaking story here for this. Yeah, yeah, a little bit, but I'm not going to say any more about it. But that's it. Yeah, no, don't make <laughs> me edit this out. <laughs> is, is this like Godzilla and Mecha Godzilla? Like, you know, Mecha anyway, as I was saying. <laughs> yeah, um, the, all the international moments. So they, um, what's cool now is that for every in, for every nation, I get to speak to an artist from that country or whatever and work with them. You know, I'll do sketches, but I'll, I like to talk to them first to find out, you know, what are the traits and what are the, you know, the clothing styles and things like that. What would go into doing that? So the artists will give me feedback. I'll do sketches, then they'll look at the sketches, you know, because again, the Muppet anatomy, Muppet structure is very important to put that into the design because then I'm, the Jim Henson company is gonna have to take that and build from that. Most of the time, these people are animators and they don't really incorporate the Muppet structure and the Muppet anatomy. You know, I, I, I practically lived at Henson before COVID happened. Practically lived there. And I got to see a lot of construction. You know, Raleigh Cruson is like the, the master Muppet builder. Sure. And I got to watch her sometimes in the process of building characters. And I got to see the understructure of the characters, how they, they build the foam rubber understructure. And I said, you know what? I can use that when I'm drawing and designing the characters. Mm. Well, that's why, you know, even now I'm doing a, a how to draw guide for Sesame Street with like a lot of characters. And I'm using this construction theory that I developed as part of the whole thing. But anyhow, you asked me about the, if I, it's, I don't get the final word. We have the culture trust and we have the production department and then the head, the head people of the company that oversee. And then, of course, the, the people in my department, the brand creative department. They also have to look at it and weigh in because if it's going to become a product of any kind, whether it's artwork or an actual toy or something, you know, they need to weigh in on it too so that it works. So there's a lot of a lot of hands in, in, in the whole thing, but in the end, it's always my drawing. Like recently I designed Ji Young, the new Korean Muppet. And you know, even though a lot of people weighing in on that, ultimately the final puppet is just, she leapt off my drawing table. So whenever I watch, I'm saying, yeah, that's my daughter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you you anticipated my next question because about all these, there are variations all across the world of of, of Sesame, different types of Sesame uh, workshop stories, you know, stories, Sesame Street throughout the world. But fall under the Sesame Workshop umbrella. So, do they all these places have to check in with you or the main? I guess the main branch to say this is what we want to do. Is this okay? Well, the way it works is that you know Sesame will see a need, and then we will reach out. To, I mean, being a not-for-profit company, it, it has this very um, it's very meritorious because people open 
respect. We're not just like some, like, again, not to put down Disney or any other company, but they're for profit. We're not for profit. So people look at us a little bit differently. We reach out to them and say, look, you know, we see this need. We're interested in supporting you. Can we help you? So that, that's when they'll start to let us know. Well, sometimes they'll come to us and say, we have this need. Can you help us? So it's all about finding out what they need. Now, other countries have their own Muppets, too. And even though they use a lot of Bert and Ernie, I think, on every co-production, you know, you'll see Grover, you'll see, I think, even Oscar in some cases, but not, not every case. Elmo doesn't appear in some of these other places, I believe. Mm-hmm. But they, Cookie Monster does, you know, I'm grateful for. They may have different names, but, you know, they do, they do appear. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm losing track of uh, what you were asking me for. No, I was just wondering if the, these other countries have to check in with you before they do anything. Is right. that, do they have any freedom of their own or they have to, like, go through you? No, it's a, it's a collaboration. It's not so much a freedom, it's a, it's a collaboration because we understand the structure of pro- producing mm-hmm. a Sesame Street show. They understand the need and the, and the audience. So we come together and respectfully we submit to the kind of thing that they let us know. So that's why they'll let us know what kind of additional characters they may not they may need. Like in India, they have Boomba. Is it, is it in India or is it um, Bangladesh? But I know there's so many co-productions, it's hard to keep track. Yeah. They, they decided they wanted a, a giant lion because the lion over there was, was um, very important. So they'll come up with their own you know, ideas of the Muppets. Of course, we have to design them. And now it's always me, which I'm really happy about. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it's a real collaboration with the country being the, the main resource for all the information we bring the structure they bring the substance mm-hmm. that's how it kind of works well I, i'm okay now i'm fascinated these co-productions do you ever uh watch any of them just to see oh, yes. what, yeah i mean yeah, yeah. I, watch them. I watch everything i don't always understand wow. because it's a different language but you sure know, i am i am intimately invested in all of them because again i like we have uh, a co-production now for the rohingya people it's through Bangladesh, but um, I don't understand the language that they speak over there, but I designed the two little Muppets, uh, Noor and Aziz, and I'm telling you, you know, again, going back to Raleigh Cruson, who's just such a gifted, gifted artist, she built the puppets, and when I asked for certain things, I'm always pushing them a bit, and saying, you know, I need her, the eyes, the pupils to be bigger to make them look younger and sweeter. And they said, but Lewis, we don't, we haven't done that. We've never done eyes that big before. I said, I know, but I think this is an opportunity because otherwise they're going to look a little bit older. They're, the way they dress and the way, especially the little boy, Aziz, he was going to look like a man unless he had those bigger pupils to make his head look a little smaller in, with his eyes. And they, they had to cut special size, you know, mm-hmm. felt for that. And, but it worked perfectly. It really, really worked out. When I did the photo shoot for them, I had to keep myself from crying a couple. I, had, I, had, I was choked up the entire time because I'm looking at these two little children that I, I mean, again, they're Muppets, I know, but they're children in my heart. And you know, they came from my drawing table to Henson. Now they're finished Muppets in front of me and I get the pose. And Nora is to me the cutest little of, of all the girl Muppets. Oh. Not because I designed her. Yeah, I designed her, but then Raleigh made her for real. And she is just divine. So I can't wait. I think I'm supposed to be doing another either a photo shoot or some kind of a photo op 
using these two puppets. Pretty That's sweet. Oh yeah. man. Well, you mentioned Julia, and I'd like to go back to her for a moment. She's the first um, autistic character on the show. Uh, she got a lot of, and probably still does get a lot of media attention. What? Uh, how did she come about, and what was that process like? Yeah, that was amazing. Another one of those seismic moments for me because I had been volunteering at a school on Staten Island for kids on the spectrum. I had no idea that Sesame Workshop had been working for like 10 years to develop some kind of a program for children on the spectrum. Mm. And they didn't know that I was volunteering with children on the spectrum at the school in Staten Island. A friend of mine, um, uh, Rachel London Carter, she's the one that saw it in me, said, you know, you'd be good for these kids. And I said, well, I don't want to hurt them. I don't want to dis disrupt their progress. She says, no, you just got to love them. And I love kids, so I can do that. I can easily love them. So I went there and really got to work with, you know, several kids, but two in particular really touched my heart. And so one day I go to work and they said, Lewis, you know, we have this um, a need for a new character. But this was different because this one's going to be on the autism spectrum. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. I said, I have been just working with kids on the spectrum as a school in Staten Island. And they said, what? I said, now, if I didn't have that experience, I wouldn't have touched this. I said, well, no, please get somebody who really understands it. But because I had been doing all this work, I was working with them at their schools at their homes, on outings. I really got an immersive experience. I got to talk to the parents. It was just amazing. So I really am really so grateful to Rachel for seeing that in me and to give me that opportunity because who knew? I mean, again, it was meant to be. So anyhow, we, now again, Sesame had been working on it for like about 10 years and they felt now that we've done it for 10 years, now we can begin to develop it. Because they that's one thing about Sesame Workshop, they really, sometimes they have to address something that's immediately happening. Mm -hmm. But they also, whenever they can, they always try to go back and take their time to really understand something before they even begin designing any of the initiatives or any of the programs or any of the materials they want to design. It's a real conscientious company. And I really love that about, about them, about us. <laughs> but um, yeah, so anyhow, so now the thing is that with Julia, I wanted to, and she wasn't supposed to be a Muppet on the show. She was just going to be a character in a book called Be Amazing. And because again, and I felt good about that, I said, because if she was a Muppet, there's no way to really represent the entire spectrum. Because um, you know, when you talk about a, a person's behaviors on the spectrum, everybody's different. There's no way to represent all of them. So I said, if we, we just talk about Julia's behaviors in the book, anybody can relate it to their own situation. And she, she was more like, you know, she could be a, a wider spread that way, you know, more people will be able to relate to her. But the, the, uh, so I designed her. And um, of course, my first design was, you know, I put, I put a bow in her hair and I put like a little, little bracelet. And they said, well, no, in, Julia, in Julia's case, actually her name was, was Isabel there at, at the beginning, but we already had a character named Isabel, so they changed it later to Julia. And so they said, um, she doesn't like bracelets or bows. So I read, this, I read the drawing. And again, it took a while to get there because mm -hmm. I had gone to all the symposiums, all the meetings, all the dinners. You know, I was sitting right next to the executive producer at the time. You know, it wasn't the same one at the, at the end, but at the time I was sitting next to the executive producer and said, who's this little kid from Brooklyn who just wanted to draw Muppets? And now I'm in these big meetings with the executive producer who's sitting right next to me. <laughs> I'm learning about this beautiful new initiative to help people that really need help. 
And so then when they, they the, the, the book did so well, the, the community accepted Julius so tremendously. So one of the creative uh, heads said, you know, we're going to have to make her a Muppet on the show. And I said, oh, no, no, we can't do that. We're never going to be able to represent the entire spectrum. But then they said, you know what? We're not trying to represent the spectrum. We're pointing to it. We're bringing attention to it. If we take one person and we expose the fact that, you know, someone on autism can, can work in a community, can, can, you know, communicate the way they communicate within the community, people will see that, you know, it'll be more open to us. You know, I can get behind that. That sounds right to me. Mm. So I went ahead and I started designing the, the actual Muppet. But I said, this is an opportunity to do something different. So I said, you know, I want to give her, again, character design. The minute you see a character, the story has begun. And even beforehand, but the real story has begun when you see the character. So I said, I want to change her features a little bit. So I wanted to give her a different angle of eye. Not to make it look strange or odd, just to make it look different. So you know there's something different about Julia. Then I also wanted, you know, because again, I fell in love with the two kids that I got to work with the most. And I could see they, they were like, to me, they were like diamonds in the rough. They were developing, they were growing, they were learning. So they were diamonds in the rough. The diamonds are there, it's just rough right now. So I said, I want to I hint that into Julia. So I gave her a diamond-shaped nose. Very subtle. I didn't tell anybody. I just gave her this diamond-shaped nose. And of course, everybody, you know, felt good about the design, but they were asking me questions about, well, why the, her nose is so different than Henson? You know, Raleigh herself was telling me, you know, Lewis, you're asking us to do things we've never done before, like the angle of the eyes and the, that, that particular kind of nose. And they said, well, you know what? There's never been a Muppet that's been on the spectrum before. This is an opportunity to really do something new and, and different. So they, you know, they were very, they embraced it. Mm. Then one thing I said, you know what? When Julia's on TV, she's not going to say, hi, welcome to Sesame Street, the way Elmo or Cookie or even the human actors do. They're not, you know, she's not going to say that. She's going to be drawing or doing, engaged in whatever she's engaged in. So I said, you know, I'm going to have to do something to make her immediately relatable and so you can engage with her very quickly, even though she's not going to be making that connection. So I want to give her human texture hair. Even if it's going to be an unusual color, the, the hair should be human texture, so she looks more like a real little girl. Mm -hmm. So that when you see her, you already kind of feel a warmth. But the new executive producer at that, at that time said, well, no, we don't want that because we really want her to be part of the Muppet world, to be inclusive. And I said, yeah, she will be. But at the <clears> time, there's something different about her. And I really think it's an opportunity to kind of highlight that and to really make her more accessible to the, to the audience that's not going to be making friends with her immediately the way everybody else does. Oh, no, you can't do that. We can't do this. So it was really, I said, look, what, what hope do I have that I can, you know, override the executive producer? Not saying that she was wrong. I'm just saying that this is an opportunity. And I really believe that's, that's the right way to go. Another person who is in charge of the autism ministry, Dr. Jeanette Betancourt, now I'm dropping her name yes because she's another hero of mine. She said, you know what? Let's try it Lewis's way because something about it just seems right. And then, and of course, they know how passionate I am about, how enthusiastic I am about everything I do. So she, she stood for me. So again, she overrides everybody because she's in charge of the, the autism initiative. So she wanted to try. If it doesn't work, we can always adjust it later on. But I think let's try it. 
and it worked tremendously. And again, I didn't know for sure, but the thing is in my heart, again, I, I go from my gut and my heart, and I feel these things deeply. So I said, let's try this and see if this works. And sure enough, it worked beautifully. So when you see her, you know, even though she's not engaging with you right away, you see this beautiful little girl. Yeah, she's yellow, she has orange hair, but she's a little girl with these beautiful eyes and this, this odd shaped nose. And you just want to squeeze her and hug her and you kiss her. And, you know. Well, you said about not represent, it's, there's a difference between representing and representation. And that's, so that was, you know, that, that was the important thing, the representation part. I, I do want to circle back to, you, you, you said you, Cookie Monster is your favorite of all time. What, what is it about Cookie Monster that you love? Well, uh, people usually think it's because he eats cookies. Yeah, cookies <laughs> are cool, but that's not it. There was an episode of Sesame Street where Sesame Street ran out of cookies. And he's walking around trying to find cookies. And he, and he says, he's asking, you know, um, I think he asked, uh, yeah, he asked Maria, I think the first one. And he said, um, Maria, you have cookie? And she says, well, no, I, I have, but I have a, a tuna fish sandwich. You're gonna have half the tuna fish sandwich. What me look like, tuna fish monster? Me need a cookie. He's going around, he sees a bicycle wheel. It looks like a cookie. He looks, he sees a clock. It looks like a cookie. He's going berserk because there are no cookies on Sesame. Then he sees Oscar's garbage can lid. And he looks and he says, is, is that cookie? So Oscar says, hey, go make cookies somewhere else. And he slams the lid down. And the cookie says, oh, go make cookies something. He's going to go make cookies. So he goes to Alan in Mr. Hooper's store to learn how to make cookies. And that was a nice, um, he had to learn how to be patient because Alan had all the ingredients out and Elmo and Zoe were there. And, and Cookie Monster says, can we eat the ingredients now? I said, no, no, Cookie, you have to wait. You're gonna make the cookies. So Alan was trying to you know, be, help him learn how to be patient. So he says, me can't take this anymore. So he covers his eyes and keeps saying, cookie ready, cookie ready. <laughs> and then finally, Alan says, cookie ready. And he pulls up the tray and he says, oh my. They're all beautiful, like each one like a cookie snowflake. Each one is different, so happy. Right then, he hadn't eaten, eaten one yet. Maria comes walking and says, ooh, do I smell fresh baked cookies? He said, oh yeah, sure. And she's with some kids. Yeah, everybody have some. And he gave away every single cookie. He didn't even have one for himself. And he didn't mean to, but he said, oh no, this catastrophe, what are we gonna do? So then of course, Grover with his many, many jobs. He had that day happened to be driving a shipment of cookies to Mr. Hooper's store. So when he got there, Cookie saw that and Cookie just lunged at it and just started eating all the cookies. But the reason why I love cookies, Cookie Mouse so much is because as much as he loves cookies, he loves his friends more. He gave away every single cookie. We're not even thinking about it until after we're all gone. Now, he saw them being being taken. <laughs> You know what it is? He he believes that his friends are going to enjoy cookies as much as he does. And he knows as good as he feels about cookies, if he can help them feel that good, he wants to do that. So that's why he's like my ultimate hero, Cookie Monster. You know, when I grow up, which I never will, I want to be Cookie Monster because, again, they should call him Friend Monster. He, he loves his friends more than cookies. So that shows people. You know, when I teach about the characters, I teach people how to draw characters too. I do international webinars, you know, all over the world. To, oh, fascinating. To, yeah, for different co-productions. When I tell them about, about the characters, each character represents a different personality trait, very concentrated. Even Jim Henson said, you can put 
all of a all of a, a character trait or a personality trait into a character without even deviating from it because it's a character. It's easier to do. He spoke about that when I think during the labyrinth interview. But anyhow, that's mm. must be part of the you. Do you have the power to bring back Muppets that have been discontinued? I mean, not discontinued, like they haven't been seen in a while? Um, well, we did something like that. But let me just finish the story. Oh, sorry, okay. guys. Sorry, go ahead. Okay, so, um, yeah, so like I was saying, he, he's, um, he would give away his last cookie. And see, you threw me off there, man. I was, I was on a roll. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, that's okay, that's okay. Show, show, so you screwed it. <laughs> <laughs> anyhow, he, he feels like he, he can make other characters. So that's the cool point. Each character has his own personality point. His personality point is enthusiasm and generosity. So mm -hmm. you know, that's why people can look. You know, there are people that want to make it in, in whatever field they're in. They'll step on their own mother to get there. But <laughs> proves, no, you can be passionate about something and still share it and, and give, to some, give it to some people yeah. to the point where you give it all away. It'll come back to you at some point. You know, even the Grover has his back. It'll come back. To you. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I just had to finish that story. No, no, of course, I'm sorry. No, I, apologize. I was just curious because, like, there are like whole like like sites and like uh, group pages asking like whatever happened to this Muppet. You know, why? so I was I was curious like if you had the power to bring any back. Like, you know, there's this whole one site devoted to Skeeter. So, <laughs> you know what? The characters are educators they are i don't i won't say they're tools even though they're kind of tools to deliver the curriculums so it really is about what we need to say now if there was some reason that a character would would help benefit an initiative they might bring them back but I, it's not it's not that's not up to me so you know again i, I service the needs mm -hmm. but the education Education Research and Outreach Department, so all the ones that decide what's going on. They work directly with the Department of Education to find out what kids are, you know, going to be learning later on. And they kind of try to use that as a gauge to see what kind of a program to develop. There's, there's so much that goes into it. So again, of course, I know people, and that's the magic of Sesame Street. The characters are like the face of the whole thing. Kids aren't even really supposed to be knowing that they're learning because they're having such a good time. But um, it really is about what the need is. Like, like you see Sherlock Hemlock. I mean, Sherlock Hemlock is, is such a cool character, but you know, it, it, it wasn't servicing the specific need anymore. You know, Roosevelt Franklin is a great example because you know uh, there were people who were offended by people of color who were offended by Roosevelt Franklin. And oh. that, that was ultimately the reason why he went away, even though what he represented you know, was kind of indicative of what was going on in, in many places. But people didn't want to think that way. And I love Roosevelt Franklin. Matter of fact, he was there for the, for the um, 50th anniversary. You know, he was actually on the set for that. So that was beautiful. But yeah, so they, they, it all depends on what's needed. Again, it's all about the characters representing the initiative that's needed. So the first and foremost important thing is to make sure we understand what we need to say and who we're saying it to now what kind of character is going to help us do that well yeah you, you kind of cover our next question which is what goes into the decision of retiring a character or stopping using it it's, it's pretty much that's the those 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 parameters or do you find that characters just kind of go away on their own you know for for other reasons well, a lot of times, we you know, of course, we're always listening to the audience. You know, uh, one quick story is there was a character named Lulu that um, 
at the time, the kids were were confused because they couldn't tell if it was a boy or a girl. Mm. It was it was distracting at the time. Mm. So they just decided, you know what, then we'll just put Lulu away, you know, and she, she never came back. But now it, talk, talking about listening to the audience, when Snuffy was Big Bird's imaginary friend way, way back, the kids would get frustrated because they knew he wasn't imaginary. And whenever Big Bird said, all right, Snuffy, you wait here. I'm going to go get my friends to meet you. He'd go away. And when he come back, Snuffy had to either go back home because mom called him or something like that. <laughs> so the thing is that, and the kids would get frustrated. So the kids were really complaining to the parents, but he's real. Why won't they believe Big Bird? This is not fair. They were really getting upset. So the mothers wrote to Sesame and said, look, you know, this is causing a lot of anxiety to my child. You know, he's not really an imaginary friend. He's a real friend. Can't you make him come out? And, and so they, that's when they had to actually make, you know, they thought they were servicing a need. Kids have imaginary friends. So this will kind of be sort of an imaginary friend, but imaginary friends are very real to the kids. So they figured mm. if he had a real, a real imaginary friend, I mean, it's kind of convoluted. But it wasn't working because the kids loved Snuffy and they did, and they felt bad for Big Bird. It was breaking their hearts. Then they had the episode where you know Big Bird and Snuffy got to meet. I was, I was one of those kids that got upset. <laughs> so thank you because you know, Snuffy came out like that. So thank you. <laughs> no, uh, no. We want to talk briefly about you know Emilio Delgado, just who played Luis, recently passed, and a couple of years ago Carol Spinney, who you know. Who, you were very close with. Can you just talk about him a little bit? Uh, who, Carol? Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, Carol. Such a dear, dear friend. I mean, he's the very first Muppeteer that I ever met. When I, I had to go on the set in 1993, because I had, again, I was being really trained to help reestablish the entirety of Sesame Street. And they had what was called Sesame Street Around the Corner. It was like a dance studio and a couple of like a, a newsstand, it was a different look, it was around the corner. So I was asked by Jim Mayen, the same um, art director that, that was essential in hiring me as a freelancer. He said, no, I want you to come with me so we can start creating you know, imagery that, to indicate what around the corner looks like. So, um, you know, I, I, was, I was happy to do that. So the very first day he said, I, I need you to come to the set. And I was excited. My first visit to the set, I couldn't believe it. So I said, look, please, is it possible to bring my son? I'm not trying to overstep my boundaries, but I got to bring my son. He said, well, at the time, it was more difficult to do it that way. But I said, you know what? How old is your son? Well, I said, I think he was nine at the time. He said, yeah, yeah you, you can bring him. As long as he's well-behaved, oh, yeah, he's very well-behaved. <laughs> so we went there and we go on. Of course, I would have been terrible going on set without my son. So he was, there was, he was so good to me. They get on, and of course, what they're doing, Cookie, I mean, not Cookie, of course, Cookie Mouse is always on the first in my mind, but Oscar the Grouch in the sloppy jalopy. I think he was arguing with Maria or somebody. So that my first live uh, vision of Muppets was Oscar the Grouch in the sloppy jalopy yelling at somebody. And at the, you know, so of course, we're just observing and letting them because you have to be very quiet. Finally, it was over, and then this, this tall man with this beautiful head, you know, head of white hair comes out. And I've seen pictures of him before, but that's in person. So I'm I stand back there. I'm not trying to get in trouble, just being quiet. 
And he comes around and he says, hi, I'm Charles Benny. And it's, hi, I'm Louis Mitchell, nice to meet you. And you know, he was really sweet. He met my son, hi, how are you doing, man? And my son, of course, he was so great. And he's asking me all these questions and everything. He says, you know what? I want to show you something. So Carol takes my son by the hand, takes him around the garbage can, puts Oscar the Grouch on my son's hand, wow. and has my son puppeteering Oscar. And I had not even touched the Muppet yet in my in career. <laughs> my son is with the Oscar the Grouch. At the time, that was the Oscar that after they replaced the orange one, this was the Oscar. They're the only one they had, the only one they used. And he's back there. And he's even working the eyelids. The, I mean, the, he has, the, people think they're eyebrows, but they're really eyelashes. But, but he's working that. And, he's, and I said, Kim, my son's back there doing Oscar the Grouch. <laughs> it was a great, great day, but that was the day I met Carolyn, and we became such good friends right there on the spot. And it lasted all the way through. I remember when he got his um his Lifetime Achievement Award from the Academy. He um I was asked to do a, a drawing thing, and I did a giant drawing of um, Big Bird holding him, like cradling him in his arms, and he's Big Bird's looking and saying, "My hero," and then Oscar's on the side with a frown saying, "My zero." And he loved that drawing. He, of course, he hung it up in his house. Then I did one for his 80, 80th birthday, uh, another gift. And he went, when he came and gave a speech in front of the whole company, uh, it was an all-staff meeting. And he says, you know, Louis, you're my favorite artist. And I'm sure I'm not his favorite favorite, but he just the fact that he said that to me. You know, one other thing that Carol did that touched my heart, they were doing behind the scenes interviews. And they just started doing that thing for the 40th anniversary. And they said, you know, it's about time when people start to see what's going on behind the scenes. So let's do more of that. So they wanted to do all these interviews. And then they asked me, because I had a pretty good relationship with Jerry Nelson as well. Mm-hmm. And they said, Lewis, can you talk to Jerry? Maybe you can do an interview. Because he didn't want to do an interview with and sign away all the rights in perpetuity. He, did, he hated that word. So I said, look, if he feels that way, I wouldn't spoke to him. He says, Lewis, man, you know, I'm not going to give up in perpetuity. No, I'm not going to do that. Not even for you. So I said, hey, I'm all I'm on your side. I just I was asked to ask you, and I did. But then they asked Carol if they could do an interview with him. And, I, and of course, they asked me if, you know, do you think Carol would do this? I said, you can ask him directly. So, well, no, we know you have a relationship with him. Can you ask him? So of course I'll ask him. You're wasting your time because he's like the sweetest guy on the planet. You can go and ask him. But and this was like a, a small behind the scenes group of people that they were kind of all these younger people that were not with the company all that long. So they were kind of shy. So I said, yeah, I'll ask him. So I went and said, Carol, would you be willing to do a, a behind the scenes interview? We're on the set that day. And I think he still had the big bird pants on, the big bird legs. So he's sitting there and he says, yeah, I do that, but only if you do it with me, Louis. Uh, <laughs> that, that's funny. <laughs> no, no, I'm serious. I'll only do it with you. Said, Carol, you, you don't need me to say, no, come on, let's do the interview. So I looked at the, at the crew and they, they showed this. Yeah, any, any, we can get with Carol. So after about five minutes, we forgot about the cameras. We were reminiscing about when he met wow. son and how the first time he, it, it was just a blast, just a blast. You keep in touch with the other cast members who no longer run the show? Um, you mean the, the human cast? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm good friends with Roscoe um, Orman. Um, and Sonia Manzano has been so great because I have a, some mentees and I've asked her, I, I, don't, I don't impose at all, but there are certain people that you feel strongly about, these two young 
Latino women that I knew that are mentees of mine. Hmm. I said, you know what, I'm going to ask Sonia. I said, you're interested in, in speaking with Sonia Rosalvo. So yeah, I would love that. So, so I wrote to her. And, you know, she, I, had, I had spoken, I think, to her daughter at one point, you know, because this is some, some, um, some career advice, things like that. So we, over the years, I, I even shot a picture of her for um, an article she was, that was being written about her. And she asked me if I'd be her photographer. Even though a photographer there, she asked me to be a photographer. Yes, of course I will. They did a whole spread about her. On, in, I forgot the name of the magazine, but of course I was the art director. So it was, it was Sonia and Grover. Hmm. And it, all these, I mean, we had such a great time. We were laughing and something. I remember that after the first time I met her, <clears throat> bless you, I was walking up Broadway. She was walking down Broadway. And I said, oh my gosh, that's Sonia. Oh, but I'm not going to sing. She's not going to remember me. Before I even got 10 feet up, Lewis, how you doing? She ran up to me, gave me a hug. I said, what's going on? What are you doing? I, said, I can't believe these people. I mean, this is like war television royalty. And she remembers <laughs> me. And we just met like once or twice, man. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, so, That's yeah, great. So, yeah. I mean, I, of wow. course, I met everybody. Of course, I, I saw Emilio at the um, screening of, of the um, Street Gang movie. There was a special screen they did in December. And the thing is, he looked fine. I gave him say, hey, how you doing, Emilio? It's nice to see him again, you know. I've seen him many times on set, you know. He's met him once at, at Starbucks near near Kaufman Astoria. So I was chatting with him then. When I saw him in December, he looked great. He, I, I didn't understand when we got the news, what could have happened in that short amount of time? Then mm. we found out about his I think it was a blood disorder or something like that, but I'm glad I, I was there. I'm glad I got sure. to see him. I'm also, I, I I'm in touch with uh, Dr. Loretta Long, but it's been a while since I heard from her. So I reached out to her on, um, on Instagram to see if she'd write back to me. But yeah, these are beautiful, beautiful people that yeah. just, they're family. They're like family. Sure. Well, I, I have to ask about something that fascinates me to no end. You also have designed the Sesame Street balloons for the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And that just looks like an amazing job and also incredibly complicated. I mean, which ones did you design and what can you tell us about that, that process? Well, the first the reason I even got that after I got the Sesame Street, I designed a, a, a balloon called Sky Dancer for the other company that I worked for, Abrams Gentili. So I had gotten the experience of designing a balloon, which was great. They saw that on my resume and they said, look, we need a new balloon for Big Bird because they can't fly the old one anymore. So I went ahead and I, I did the sketches. So I couldn't believe because I loved the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. When I was yeah. a kid, my favorite balloon <laughs> was Underdog. Yes, my, my oh my God. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up. I'm sorry. Underdog was the best. Absolutely. You guys are my brothers, man. I'm telling you. This is amazing. Well, let me tell you this. So after when I did the balloon for, for Skydancer, I didn't get to go to the Hoboken studio. The studio, the Macy's balloon studio was in Hoboken, the float and the balloon studio. I didn't get to go for that one, but for the Big Bird one, I, I did have to go to look at the scope to see, because they do a, a, a clay maquette before they do the fiberglass casting, which is where they do the color operations and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so I'm, I'm excited to be this. Wow, this is historic. So I'm walking in, <laughs> And um, I meet John, John Piper. He was the director at the time. So he walks me and give me a little tour downstairs. Then we start to go upstairs. 
Then we passed this room and they had these gigantic boxes. They looked, to be honest, they looked like giant coffins, but they were these big brown boxes, wooden boxes along this wall in this brick room. And it was just a plate, a way to go up. And I noticed there were little plates on each box with names on it. And I said, John, what are those? He said, oh, those are balloons that we used to um, fly, but we can't fly them anymore. Either they're too old or you know, we had to paint over them so many times. After a while, the ballooning paint weighs them down. He's explaining all that to me. But then I saw one of the boxes said underdog. And I said, wait a minute, what's in this box? Oh, that's the underdog balloon. He said, wait a minute, is that the same one from like 1964 when I was... Yeah, there was only one underdog balloon. That, that's, that's, but that's that's my balloon, man. You gotta be kidding me. And I, of course, he couldn't take it out. But I, I was went, just gonna I say a little, little difficult. But oh, I know. But I ran up and I hugged the box. I said, "Man, I was only four years old," so I, and I got kind of choked up to be honest. Even now, thinking about it, I get a little choked up because the history is is just beautiful. So yeah, so yeah, I, when I went up to do the balloon, I saw Big Bird. He looked beautiful. Because they, they have to sculpt thinking about all the dynamics of flight and lift and all the things that they have to consider. He looked like Tweety Bird. His head was big, his body was small. I said, no, no, you can't do this. <laughs> so I said, I said, you got to you know, tell him to add this and that. And said, well, Lewis, we have to make sure that he can fly. He has to be able to float. You know, the way they work, the balloon, you know, it's a big, you know, either round or oval-shaped thing. They have to use a series of cables in the head to pull so that it creates the shape on the outside. So he says, he has so many, he has like a, ne a nest of cables in his head. If we don't make his head big enough, it's, it's gonna be too weighty and he's gonna you know, like drag his beak along the floor. I said, well, he can't go this way. So we went back and forth and they said, well, do you sculpt? I said, give me those tools. And I re-sculpted <laughs> re a big portion of him. And they said, that's not gonna fly though. So then we went back and forth till we found a nice medium and that's the balloon that you actually see. So that was the first one I did uh, for Sesame Street. Then I did Supergirl, which was really, really great because they told me that balloon got more airtime than any other balloon in the history of the parade, but only because the marching band behind him was late. So, so they, had to, they had to fill the time. So they showed every angle, every angle of that balloon. It was really, I was so proud that I know I said, it's because of my great design. No, because the line was late. <laughs> I also designed the float that everybody, the humans and the Muppets stand on the wave. I designed that too. And that was a big, big deal because it was for the 35th anniversary. Huh. And they said, Lewis, you know, Macy's told me that because of the design that I submitted, you may not have a float this year because we've never done anything like this before. So I was kind of nervous, but they finally found a way to say that we had to invent tools to do what you wanted us to do. I said, oh my gosh. Incredible. Wow. Have you been on the floor yourself? Have you appeared? Uh, yeah, I met it that first day. I went there. I you know, <laughs> climbing up, I'll, looking all over it. I, I, I don't really get too deep into the story because, you know, I, I've been married before. And I, it, even though it didn't work, um, my wife and I, we were actually offered a chance to get married at the parade. They said that they get, they get so many uh, requests to, for people to, you know, to either announce their engagement or to actually get married in the parade. Of course, they always say no, but because I had just designed that float, they were so ecstatically happy with the way that turned out and so impressed that I pushed them beyond what they had done before. That they said, Louis, you're getting married, right? Why don't you have your wedding at the parade? 
And I laughed and said, no, no, it's true. We, we like to give that to you as a gift. Said, You're going to be kidding me. You can, actually, <laughs> you can actually look this up. It's somewhere on the internet. Oh, so wow. I said, you got to be kidding. So let me ask my fiance. So I, I called up and said, Macy's wants to give us a, a wedding at the we're already getting married. So I know, but we can have like two ceremonies. But at the Macy's parade, who does that? So we'll be the first ones. Okay, I guess that's all right. It sounds kind of cool. So I said, all right. So I called them back and said, well, yeah, thank you very much. We would like to have that. Then they said, Judge Judy wants to be the official. I said, wait a minute. Me. That mean lady? Oh, she told me like that. So anyway, so I called. At first, I told my mom. My mother said, no, don't let her do it. She's going to chew you up. And so then I called my fiance and she said, well, I guess it's okay. They think she's fine. It's fine. We actually got to meet her later to make sure she wanted to make sure we weren't just doing some publicity stunt. <laughs> we really weren't getting married. But anyway, so I called him up and said, all right, yeah, we'd like Judy to be the efficient. Thank you. Oh, Michael Feinstein wants to sing for you. And I said, come on, what are you guys trying to do to me? So when I, I called up my, my fiance, I said, Michael Feinstein wants to sing. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yes. You have to take there. Okay. So I called him back and said, yes, we like Michael Feinstein. Then they said, Access Hollywood wants to put it on TV that same night. I said, come on. I, this, keep, this is getting too big for me. I don't understand what you guys are. I, I, I called her up and said, Access Hollywood wants to put it on. There she says, it's their show. I guess it's fine. So <laughs> right. I, I said, so I called him and said, all right, we want access Hollywood. That's it, right? Nothing else. No more, right? Then they said, no, that's it. That's everything. Thank you. We're glad to do this for you. We're so happy that we're going to have our first wedding and it's going to be for you. And I said, wow. So I'm sitting in my, in my office at Sesame thinking, man, how did that happen? So it's a blessing, but at the same time, it's so odd. So, you know, dear friend of mine, Kevin Clash, Oh, he, he, he's like my brother. He comes in and he says, and I'm sitting there with this goofy look on my face. I said, What's the matter with you, man? I said, Well, Kevin, you know, Macy's just offered us a wedding at the parade with Judge Judy and Michael Feinstein and Access Hollywood. I can't believe it. And then you know what he says to me? Can Elmo be your best man? <laughs> I said, Oh my God. I thought it was over. I said, Because Kevin was going to be my best man at this wedding. So I said, Elmo can be, I said, how are we going to do that? Anyhow, like I said, you might be able to find it online tonight. It, it, it actually happened. Kevin got into this oh, wow. box. Elmo had his tuxedo in and he had the rings in his hand. <laughs> Kevin was in that box for maybe 40 minutes. He, he's a giant guy, you know, like a bodybuilder. And he's, he's like in that box. It wasn't tiny, but it was still confined. Almost sat up the whole time looking as ready and happy as he could be. Uh, oh, oh, this is just unbelievable. My God. I got a million stories, guys. Trust me. <laughs> you do, and I'm sorry. I hope we're not, I'm we're sorry not to keeping keep you too long. We're eating it up. I swear. <laughs> oh, gosh. We might have to, yeah, we're gonna have to do another show with you sometime soon. I mean, this is just too much. Yeah, before before wow. we let you go, we do want to ask about the Norman Rockwell. Uh, you know, museum. You 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 became involved. How you how you become involved with uh, with them and became part of the board of directors? Norman Rock is the board of trustees. Actually, that's the technical. board of trustees. I'm sorry. Yes, that's all right. Norman Rockwell again. The two greatest stars of my life. 
Jim Henson, Norman Rockwell. And I, when I was 16 years old, I discovered that I was going to the high school of art and design and just got there. I was in, in the city by myself for the first time. And I was wandering around the neighborhood after school, found this bookstore. And I asked where the art section was. And again, I was just looking at art books and all of a sudden I find one that says Norman Rockwell Illustrated. It's not the giant one, it's the other small one by Watson mm -hmm. Boto. And I'm looking, there's a picture of him like doing some painting, but it, uh, no, it, I think it's a picture of the, um, the, free, the Freedom From Want poster he did of the family at Thanksgiving. Right. Mm. Well, look, I said, is that a painting? So I'm looking and I open up the book and I start learning about this guy. And so my goodness, this is amazing. He's, he became my favorite artist immediately. And as, as time went on, I just started trying to, I couldn't afford the book back then. It was like a whole four ninety five, and I, you know, I couldn't afford it because I got like my lunch money and stuff like that. So <laughs> I went every single day. That bookstore owner was my angel. I went every day during the week because I couldn't go on the weekends to look at that book. And he always let me. And then one day I went, the book wasn't there. So somebody bought it, but I have another copy in the back. And he went and got another copy. So I, I, I had been saving my money. And I finally was able to buy it. And I still have that same copy in my book. My book. Oh. But anyhow, I just followed Norman Rockwell's career all, all this time. Went to the museum quite a few years ago. And at the same time, there was a Drew Struzan show. You know who Drew Struzan is, Yes, right? yes. Yeah. Movie poster. Yeah. yeah, yeah. His show and the Norman Rockwell show at the Norman Rockwell Museum. This is way before I, I even knew anyone there. I just had to go and see the Rockwell show. I didn't know there was a Drew Struzan show. Who, he's also a friend of mine. As a matter of fact, just today, I got, a, I got a, an email from his wife. Oh, wow. But but the thing is, um, oh, I don't want to lose track of this. Um, you can you can always edit stuff, right? <laughs> yes. But um, yeah. So anyhow, um, I kept following his work, Norman Rockwell, and then um, Sesame wanted to. They told me they sent me a letter. Now, of course, I've been following and collecting all the books and everything like that. Been to the museum a couple of times. Still didn't know anybody. But then Sesame. Uh, the, one of the women from the publishing department, the publishing and museums department, writes me an email saying, Lewis, now of course I direct all the photo shoots, so I, I know how to pose the characters. So Lewis, can you write the instructions on how to pose Cookie Monster for, uh, there's a museum that wants that, wants to put a display up. I said, oh, I, I can go do it. So no, no, it's pretty far away. We just need you to write the instructions. I'm saying, you know, it doesn't really work like that, but which museum is it? Well, it's the Norman Rockwell Museum. <laughs> Wait a minute. You're going to send my favorite Muppet to my favorite artist museum and I can't go do it? So, well, Lewis, we don't have it in the budget to send you. I don't care. I'll pay my own way. I don't care about it. They, they found a way to pay for me to get there. But anyhow, I get there. They, they already sent Cookie over there and they, they attempted to pose him. That was the, the very first day of the show. So, and I knew that. So I went in and I said, where's Cookie Monster? So they, they said that he's in the back. None of the um, none of the audience had gotten that far back into the show yet. This was a show called From From Woodstock to the Moon. It was the 50th anniversary of many things. The Norman Rockwell Museum's 50th, Sesame Street, Woodstock, and the moon landing. So they had all this stuff about 1969. So I ran back there and I looked, and he looked pitiful. He was just slumped over, had a cookie broccoli oh. in his hand. They thought they did a good job, and I said, please, lift my plexiglass now. So I got in there, and I, it didn't take me long. I just put him in position, made him look happy. You know, he's, he's holding his cookie up and everything. 
And they said, oh my goodness, he looks alive now. What did you do? I said, well, just close it up because people are coming. Just close, put the fiberglass on. So um, anyhow, the, the, the museum's curator, the chief curator uh, or senior curator, Stephanie Plunkett, she came to me and said, Louis, that was amazing what you did with the Cookie Monster. Is this what you do for Sesame? So it was one of the things that I do, and I started explaining other things that I did. They said, wow, would you like to come and do a lecture at Norman Rockwell Museum about your, your Sesame career? I said, you gotta be kidding me. Uh, I get the lecture at Norman Rockwell. I said, of course. So I, I arranged it with Sesame because whenever I'm actually one of their public speakers now officially. So we always have to work it out with them. And so anyhow, I'll try to keep this a little bit shorter. So anyhow, I, I went and did the, the, the presentation. I brought Elmo with me, of course, my, the photo Elmo, and I did a little demonstration, showed some images. And one of the images, that, I don't know if you, you may have seen this image, is, um, you know the Norman Rockwell triple cell portrait? Yeah, you, oh yeah. With, oh, I did yeah. a version where I did Kermit looking in the mirror and drawing Jim Henson. That's amazing. Oh, yeah, I love so that one. Yeah, oh, a lot of God. people know that piece. And yes. I did that to get the job, but when I showed it to them, they said, you already have the job, which is funny. But anyhow, um, that was one of the images in the presentation that I did. So I showed the first the triple cell portrait by Rockwell. Then I showed the one I did with Kermit and Jim Henson. They went berserk. I mean, uh. these were mostly elderly people, but they were like screaming like kids. So anyhow, after the after the presentation, you know, I, I said, no, I wonder if I can donate my drawing to them if they'd be interested. So I sent an email to Stephanie and I felt like before I hit reply, I mean, the send button, she replied with all caps, yes, we'd love to have it. When I left, after I did the presentation, she also told me, Lewis, that's one of the greatest presentations we've ever had. I said, come on, you gotta be kidding me. She said, no, it was really wonderful. We're so happy we're giving you this generous stipend. I said, oh, no, no, I don't get the stipend. That goes to the Sesame because I'm on the official, you know, roster of speakers. And they said, well, we want to do something special for you. What can we do for you, Louis? Now, at the Norman Rockwell Museum, after you go to the museum and back, there's this trail. And they actually moved his actual studio onto the premises. Huh. You go in there and you, they have it all roped off. You can't go up to his easel or, or sit on his couch. They have a rope, but you can walk through and see where the some of the most amazing paintings in the world were already created. So I, I remember looking in there saying, man, I sure would like to sit in that chair, boy, just for a minute. <laughs> Anyhow, so she said, what can we do for you after that beautiful presentation? So I said, well, Stephanie, can I sit in Mr. Rockwell's chair? And I was waiting for her to say, how dare you? <laughs> and she said, oh, well, you know, we, we never let anybody do that. But of course for you, we'd be happy to. I said, wow. are you kidding me? So the next morning, I stayed at the Red Lion Inn, not too far from the, from the, from the museum. I stayed there. And the next morning, they, I go and they, they escort me to the, back to the, the, the Red Barn studio. They had taken down all the ropes. And I said, oh my gosh, is this really going to happen? They said, have a seat. So I said, well, can you do me a favor? Can you leave one of the ropes up? Because I want to show that I got past the ropes. So that I have a picture of me sitting in the chair. And you see right at the bottom of the, I think the right-hand side, you see a little bit of the rope to prove that I got beyond the rope. Like a rock of the year. We said, we never let anybody do this. Not even the employees do that. So I got to sit in Rockwell's chair. So of course, I have a giant blow up of it in my living room. <laughs> and right underneath the blow up, I have three pictures of Rockwell sitting in that chair. Oh. So that that was that was Mecca. Norman Rockwell Studio is Mecca to me. 
and I sat on the throne of Mecca. Wow! 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 wow. Oh my God! Oh my God! I mean, you got I, you. I, this is the first interview we've ever done where I'm like having this visceral emotional, like I'm getting emotional hearing these stories. And thank you so much for sharing them. So oh, like, wait, let me finish that real quick. I promise. Oh, I'll, I'll, yes. No, no, please. Please. Anyhow, after that, um, after the whole thing happened, I brought the drawing to, to the museum for, for, as a donation. And they were they're thrilled. They said, we're going to put this up in the show. I said, my drawing is going to be at the Rocco Museum. And they said, yeah. So I said, I have to come back and see it again when, when you know, when, when you put it up. A uh, couple of months later, they told me it's up. So I you know, got on a bus, got with the Stockbridge, Massachusetts and saw it there. And I was so overtaken by emotion. Mm. My drawing of the two most important artists in my life is hanging up in my favorite artist museum. And I was a mess. Whenever I go there, they always stop all the tours and say, Lewis Mitchell's here. We're lucky to you know, speak in a few words. That time I was a slobbering mess. I said, folks, you have to excuse me. I'm sorry, but my drawing is here. Now, of course, I gave some kind of talk. I made all claps for me and everything like that. This guy was standing on the side, a guy named Peter Williams. He says, Lewis, can I buy a cup of coffee at the commissary? I said, well, sure. So I said, I have a question to ask you. So I go in there, sit down with him. He says, no, your presentation's been great. You know, I'm so happy that you're such an active member, you know, of, you know, I wasn't a member of the museum, but I was somebody who always went there. Uh -huh. So we'd like to ask if you would consider becoming a member of the board of trustees. <laughs> you guys are trying to kill me. You guys are trying to kill. You put my drawing up, and now you want you're offering me this. I said, "Are you serious?" I said, "Yes. No. We, we believe you're an exceptional candidate for this very thing. We'd like you to to consider it." I had to clear it with Sesame, but sure enough, they they cleared it with me. And when I went for the meeting, because they had to vote, and I'm sitting outside the room. And I'm saying, gee, I hope at least enough people vote so I can actually get in. And I'm waiting for them. They have other, other items in the meeting they have to deal with. At one point, I hear this gigantic roar of applause and screams and everything like that. Then they finally let me in. So then they, they said, Lewis, did you hear that? I said, yeah, what happened? He said, you were voted in unanimously to be a member of the Board of Trustees. Oh, my God. And of course, I, I tried to hold the tears back, but... Um, they asked me to come say a few words at the podium. <laughs> so, of course, here come the tears. I said, I don't know what this means to me. Norman Rockwell means so much. Oh, Maybe God. next time I can tell you there is something else about Norman Rockwell that just blew me away that I can't even tell. I already loved the man, but you know, there's something else that happened that really pushed it over to the other side after I became a member of the board. And they, they advanced me to become on the committee of the board. So now I get to help pick the board members. <laughs> oh, well, what, I, I, what, what kind of responsibilities do you, you, do you have as a board member? Well, again, it's helping to pick new board members, voting on the collections whenever new items come in for donations. Huh. Or if the company, if the, the museum has to maybe purchase or rent a piece of artwork that he did. Or, and again, it's not just about uh, Norman Rock anymore. It's about illustration as a whole. Oh, See, that's wow. why Drew Struzan's work was in there. That's why other people, yeah. even mm -hmm. up and coming artists. But yeah, you know, let, let me tell you this real quick. You know, I was asked to write um, so, uh, um, a blog for them, and I also wrote some of the some of the um, plaques that are in the museum. You know, which again is another tremendous honor. So when Stephanie Plunkett sent me research materials so I could write these blogs. As I'm looking in there, now, my other hero, my very, I have five hero mentors. 
Martin Luther King Jr., Norman Rockwell, Jim Henson, Leonard Bernstein, and Leonardo da Vinci. And the, 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 the sixth one is me when I was six years old. And we'll talk about that later. But actually, he's the first one. But the thing is, Dr. King, and I have another seismic story that we'll have to wait for another time. But, um, Dr. King means a lot to me. And you know, the whole civil rights movement was a tremendous thing. And I would, even though I was a kid, I didn't understand it. I knew who Dr. King was. And when he was, and when he was assassinated, my mother was crying, and she let me know who he was. And said, "Wow!" So I was really following him ever since then because he meant so much to my mom. So the thing is, I'm looking over the materials that Stephanie sent me for to write this blog, and I find a letter. I'm trying to get choked up here. I find a letter from the NAACP thanking Norman Rock for his generous donation and that he's a life member of the NAACP. When he, after he broke away from the Saturday Evening Post, you know, the Saturday Evening Post told him you can't create, you can't create artwork of people of any nationalities, you know, international nationalities or any old black people or anything like that, unless they're like servants. And he said, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to, you know. So he, he would never draw them. So when I was a kid, Loving Rockwell said, he only paints white people. What's wrong with you, man? And I said, well, no, there's something more to it. I didn't know. Later on, I found out. After he left and said, he went, he did the, the, the problem we all live with, the, the Ruby Bridges painting with the little girl walking. His, he did mm-hmm. um, Golden Rule painting. He, did, he went berserk to let it all that stuff that he had built up in his heart, but he was actually a member of the NAACP at the same time as, as um, Dr. King was affiliated with them. Hmm. So that just pushed him that much more up for me. So yeah. Well, t- well can you tell well, us what do you, I'm, with everything you've done and are doing, what do you have coming up next? Well, that jazz rock opera that I've been telling you about, I'm really excited about that. It's a story about, there were several girls in my neighborhood when I was a kid, and they were all, they all seemed like they had these perfect lives, but they all ended up in some kind of horrible trouble. And, and I didn't know how it, that impacted me, especially one in particular, one girl, that we call, I don't remember her real name because we called her Angel. She ended up getting pregnant at like 14 and sent away. It was, a, it was a really heartbreaking thing. Anyhow, I wrote this whole story about that. Over the years, I realized, you know what? These songs that I write, there's, a, there's like a theme going through here. And I didn't realize I was subliminally writing this, this jazz rock, because I play a little jazz, some rock, some classical. So I, I combined the whole story. So I already have like, I think, eight of the nine pieces of music finished, fully produced. I'm going to go to Netflix and see if I can get them to, oh, wow. to nibble. So that, and of course, the school itself, I'm writing a book, you know, for the school. It's going to be the foundation of all the things that I want to teach to the school. And, um, well, I'm also working on a graphic novel, like I told you before. And also, I want to do this. I want to go back and do some traditional animation. I'm do, I want to do a feature-length animated film, but using primarily traditional um, animation techniques. Wow. Mm-hmm. Gosh. Wow, that's amazing. Oh, I can't wait for that. <laughs> I'd love to see that. No, well, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. It was such a pleasure. I, I do have one question I want to do want to ask. You yeah. know, with with uh, it's always bothered me. Bert and Ernie don't appear to have any jobs. <laughs> and so how can they afford that rent on Sesame Street? <laughs> that's what I wanted to know. <laughs> uh, 
they're Muppets. Oh, <laughs> oh no, wait. I, I can go beyond that a little bit. Look, they, they were, and at least back then, they represented kids. So kids, right. have, you know, they just happen to be, you know, have the same bedroom. I know there's a lot of talk now about Bert and Ernie and all this stuff, but back in the day, it was just two guys, two kids that happened to, you know, live in the same room and they're just delivering that part of the curriculum. Bert, Bert was always actually one of my favorites. <laughs> really, I well, love Bert. In fact, when I remember when I first started doing the photo shoots, I remember, of course, when I saw Cookie Mouse, I was happy. So Ernie meant a lot to me. But when I saw Bert, for some reason, I got starstruck. <laughs> this is freaking Bert. And the thing is, I, I, for years and years, I didn't understand why that kept happening to me until I went back and found the picture of Jim Henson sitting on the window ledge is a silhouette. And he's holding up a bird puppet toy that, and I think that's why, because the first time I saw mm. like a picture of Jim Henson, like, you know, it, I thought it was a behind the scenes, but it was just him looking at the, at the toy puppet. And it was because of that picture that made me get starstruck over Bert because it was seeing um, Jim Henson and, and Bert together like that. Mm. That's great. No, but again, <laughs> thank thank you so much for joining us today. It was really it's been an absolute pleasure, and you know you've been so generous with your time, and we really thank you. I, I've enjoyed this so much. Well, me too. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Anything to spread the message. Follow your heart. You know, people ask me, how do you get to Sesame Street? You know, they even say, can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, so yeah, I know how to get to Sesame. I followed my heart. Right. led me right to sesame so that's the advice that's great follow your heart whatever it is oh. well th this this has been pop culture retro i'm jonathan rosen with ike eisenman and again very special thanks to lewis henry mitchell and please subscribe thank you for listening to pop culture retro where no one was hurt during the making of this podcast <laughs>